Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Pilgrim Devotion. My name is Michael Howard. I am your host, and I am the pastor of Seaford Baptist Church, and this podcast is for anyone inside or outside of Seaford Baptist Church who's living the pilgrim life, representing the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man. And in our last episode, uh, I started talking about what's going on with me, what waters have I been swimming in, what has been uh, impacting my preaching lately, because some people have been asking about that, and I've just been talking a little bit about the Puritans, about church history, about uh, where I've been drinking from, and and what I've been learning. So I talked a a bit about Puritan history, Puritan context last time, who they are, what I've been reading, and I want to talk about what I've learned at this point, because, um, man, these books are so good, and I'm kept myself to just two to three things that I've learned from five of these books. I can't talk about all of them. I'd be like trying to make you all drink from a water hose. I don't think that would be helpful to you. And I think I'd be all over the place. And so I'm just going to try to talk from uh, a few spaces in five of these books. Okay, five of these books. And I'm going to start with The Reformed Pastor, seeing as how that was really the first Puritan book that I ever I've ever read. So, the Reformed Pastor, the first thing that I read in it where my eyebrows kind of shot up into the air, and I was like, whoa, he just said that. Like, he just said a thing that I have thought about. Um, it came, and, and again, this is an abridged version, so if you're listening and you're like, wait a second, that doesn't sound like that passage. I, I know which passage he's referring to. Well, if you have the the 300-page the version, then, uh, then yes, it's going to sound a little bit different. But listen to this from from Richard Baxter. The object of our pastoral care is all the flock, that is, the church and every member of it. We should know every person who belongs to our charge. For how can we take heed unto them if we do not know them? A careful shepherd looks after every individual sheep. A good schoolmaster looks to every individual student, both for instruction and correction. A good physician looks to every particular patient. And good commanders look after every individual soldier. Why then should the teachers, the pastors, the physicians, the guides of the churches of Christ not take heed unto every individual member of their charge? Christ himself is the great and good shepherd and master of the church, who is the whole church to look after and yet takes care of every individual in it. This is on the next page. He says, You might object that the congregation you are set over is so large that it is not possible for you to know all the people, much less to take heed of them individually. I answer... Were you forced to take on such a charge, or did you choose? If you chose, you excuse one sin with another. How dare you undertake that which you knew yourself to be unable to perform when you were not forced to it? It seems, then, that you had some other ends in your undertaking and never intended to make it good and be faithful to your trust. Yikes. So, he's saying that, uh, yeah, if your church is too big for you to know each individual member of the flock, then you should not have taken on that job. He goes on, though, later to say that, or maybe you just need to start more churches and and break up, or you just need more pastors or elders in your church. And he's not talking about hired. He's talking about lay. He's talking about ordaining men from within the congregation to help with the care of souls, with the pastoring, with the counseling, and... I read that and I was just like, wow, wow, this is, this is what the, 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 
if, if my heart's a clock, it's been ticking along these lines of, man, I want to know each individual member. I would love to be able to talk doctrine with each member, check on each member. Is this not what a doctor does for the physical body? Should not the pastor do this for the soul? And uh, man, I, I, am I doing that? No, I'm not. I don't have the time to get with every individual and know them on the level that Baxter's talking about right now. I want that. I want that. I know the other pastors of our church want that. We are constantly talking about how to get closer to that ideal. I was so challenged by that, and I thought, people aren't really talking like that anymore. Um, I say people. Uh, I think that evangelical culture at large is not having that conversation. We're going, how can we make it bigger and better? And Baxter's going, how can you know them? How can you know your flock? Not bigger and better. How can you know your flock and pastor their souls? Page 57 of this, uh, if you're reading the red, if you, do, if you are listening to this and you have the, the red copy in your hands, or if you're going to go back and look at it later, he says, you are likely to see no general reformation until you procure family reformation. By the way, when it says the Reformed pastor, that is not talking about Calvinism. It's not talking about Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace, how someone is saved. It's talking about a pastor being Reformed by God in his heart, meaning his character is Reformed. The revived pastor might be a better way to say it. And the church will not experience Reformation until the pastor is Reformed. And that is the idea of the book. He says, you're not likely to see general reformation until you procure family reformation, meaning until you see families transform, the church won't transform. You want your church to transform? Go after the fathers of households. Go after families. Go after family health, family holiness, family devotion, family worship. It's one of the things I'm really thankful uh, for Pastor Ben coming to our church. I think he's brought an emphasis to our church in that way that we needed. And, uh, and I love it, and, and it, it caused me to have to step up and go, man, this brother's running really fast in this area, and I'm not running fast enough, so I need to pick up my pace, and, um, and Richard Baxter is all about that. You start with the family, you'll get to the church. And then uh, this right here just laid me out when I read it. This is one of the most brutal quotes I think I've ever read in a book. <laughs> We also have a man-pleasing disposition that will make us let men perish lest we lose their love and let them go quietly to hell for fear of making them angry with us for seeking their salvation. We are ready to venture on the displeasure of God and venture our people into everlasting misery rather than draw ill will to ourselves. This distemper must be diligently resisted. Oh, I am, I am such a man pleaser. Like that is in me from birth. It is so in me. The way some people have it in them to just get in people's faces and to be confrontational and to be adversarial. It is in me to be a passive aggressive man pleaser. It must be diligently resisted because you're not loving people and not doing the right thing for fear of hurting them. You're actually just helping them potentially along to the destruction of judgment. That's what, that's what Richard Baxter is saying there. The confrontational correction that you're going to bring to them as a pastor, hard as it may be, could be the correction they need to call them to repentance. And if there's a lack of repentance, it could actually reveal and expose a lack of salvation. So you need to go and, and call on them to examine their soul. Like It's so important, this work of the pastor... And it's so easy to want to 
pull away from that work. It is so easy to want to run away from that work in the name of, well, I don't want to be confrontational. I don't want to go to someone and say you have the sin in your life and, and I can't abide it as the pastor. So next, let me talk about the bruised reed. Oh my goodness, the bruised reed. If you're going to start anywhere, mm, I th- of, of the books I'm talking about today, you probably start with the bruised reed if you are to start anywhere. Um, I think, I think. The bruised reed has helped me understand my salvation and my sanctification and to stop questioning my salvation. First, let me just give you a quote that you should just memorize. It's a beautiful quote. He says, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Amen. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. I mean, uh, that right there, I could end the podcast on that. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That is such a great, great quote from Richard Sibbs, and I am so glad it's true. Page 39 of the Puritan paperbacks version that I've got in my hand here. Those who are given to quarreling with themselves always lack comfort, and through their infirmities they are prone to feed on such bitter things as will most nourish that disease which troubles them. These delight to be looking on the dark side of the cloud only. Meaning you're pessimistic and you're just berating yourself in your conscience constantly. Are you like that? I know people like that. I live with someone like that every day. I look at him in the mirror. He is me. <laughs> okay. So I, that, that just berating your conscience, constantly pointing out your own faults, always looking at the negative in yourself. He says, we must not judge of ourselves always according to present feeling. For in temptations, we shall see nothing but the smoke of distrustful thoughts. Fire may be raked up in the ashes, though not seen. Life in the winter is hid in the root. Meaning, you might have a bad day spiritually. Don't sit around berating yourself. There's life in the root. You, you might look like a smoking flax, right? Meaning uh, you're a smoking wick. You're a candle that looks like it's gone out. The, the flame can reappear in an instant. The Lord has not given up on you. Stop questioning your salvation. Stop sitting around wondering if you're saved because you had a bad week or you had a bad year seven years ago and Satan keeps dragging it out in front of you. And understand that. In your suffering, you are a bruised reed, and in your sinning, you are a smoldering wick. But God does not break the bruised reed, and he does not snuff out the smoldering wick. And that those that belong to the Lord, he will keep the fire burning, and he will bring that flame back. And the best thing you can do is submit yourself to him, and to run to him, and realize that God is not mad at you, man. <laughs> if, if you belong to him in Christ Jesus, that he is not angry with you because his anger was poured out on Christ instead of you, come to him and repent and find that he is just and faithful to forgive your sins and that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Man, it helped me so much. And I, I needed it even this morning. As I'm reading it, I'm sitting here going, oh, right, that's true. We need that. We need that to remind ourselves of that. And then I love uh, that he says here uh, toward the end of the book, weakness with watchfulness will stand when strength with too much confidence fails. So you feel like you're strong, you're confident, you're probably going to fall because you'll be prideful. But if you're like, I'm weak and I'm watchful and I'm on guard, that's when you'll stand. 
we want to live in that place where you're like, I'm weak, Christ is strong, I got to stay on guard. He says, then you'll stand. When we become prideful, that's when we fall. It's so true. It's so true. So, again, I could go on and on about the bruised reed. There's three things, okay? There's three things I learned. Let me go to The Heart of Christ by Thomas Goodwin. I'm going to give you two from The Heart of Christ, two incredibly wonderful theological thoughts. Number one, uh, let me read this to you. This, I was sitting outside my house in a lawn chair reading this on like a Tuesday morning, and I, I think I emailed three people afterwards. It, it just mess me up so. This is him talking as if he's Jesus uh, about the Holy Spirit, okay? So imagine Jesus at the right hand of the Father speaking to you about the Holy Spirit. All his speech in your hearts will be to advance me and to greaten my worth and love unto you, and it will be his delight to do it. And he can come from heaven in an instant when he will and bring to you fresh tidings of my mind and tell you the thoughts I last had of you, even at that very minute when I am thinking of them, what they are at the very time wherein he tells you them. What he's saying is that moment by moment right now, when you have a thought in your mind that is in line with the word of God, meaning, so let's say you're about to sin and you got a thought, I shouldn't do this. That's from Jesus. The Holy Spirit, like a secretary, is bringing an actual thought from the Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father from heaven to your heart. All right? That's going to, I hope, make you feel differently the next time you are tempted to do something you know you shouldn't do. When you have that thought to go, oh, that's it's not just, well, is that my conscience? Is that the little, is that the little angel on my shoulder? And get rid of all that Looney Tunes stuff. Seriously, that is Jesus speaking to you through the Spirit saying, don't do this. I love you. Don't do this. This is not going to be joyful in the end. You think it is? It's not. Right? When, when you feel compelled to go share the gospel with a lost person, <laughs> I mean, that's the Lord Jesus, the right hand of the Father, sending the Spirit to say, go tell him. Go tell him to share. Go tell him to fish for men. Go tell him. I mean, that has just rocked my world. Like, I, I think when I emailed my friend Jeff Beard, who told me to read this book, I said, Jeff, glory, 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 glory. I just kept typing glory. That is unbelievable stuff. Again, I could just end the podcast on it. Uh, I won't. Later on in the book, the Spirit prays in you because Christ prays for you. He is an intercessor on earth because Christ is an intercessor in heaven. As he did take off Christ's words and use the same that he before had uttered when he spake in and to the disciples the words of life, so he takes off Christ's prayers also when he prays in us. He takes but the words, as it were, out of Christ's mouth, or heart rather, and directs our hearts to offer them up to God. He also follows us to the sacrament and in that glass shows us Christ's face smiling on us and through his face his heart and thus helping of us to a sight of him, we go away rejoicing that we saw our Savior on that day. Sacrament, he's talking about the Lord's Supper being like a mirror. You come to the Lord's Supper ta table, you see Jesus smiling at you, and you see his heart through his smile, and then through the sight of that, you go away rejoicing. You're like, I saw Jesus today. He still loves me. He still loves me. He prays for me from heaven, and I know that because the Spirit prays in me compelling me to call God Abba Father. 
Oh, boy. Thomas Goodwin's a good one. Listen, Thomas Goodwin's hard. Uh, I found him to be, you know, he likes a sentence that lasts for an entire page. Not easy to read. John Bunyan, so accessible. Like, I love reading John Bunyan because John Bunyan wasn't super educated in the way that Thomas Goodwin or, like, John Owen was. So when you read Bunyan, he writes the way a common man would have written in that time, which to us still feels very heady, but it's much easier to read. And uh, Thomas Watson... Super educated, but Thomas Watson was just like the every man's Puritan. I am going to dive into Watson soon, Lord willing. And once I know once I get into Watson, I'm not coming out for a while because he's like candy. I love reading Thomas Watson. I've got four Thomas Watson books on my shelf that are queued up, and I'm going to go in, and I'm not coming out for a while. So I'm holding off for the time being. But when you read Watson, when you read Bunyan, much more accessible. Good one I didn't find is accessible. The theology is so pure and good and wonderful. He has a whole section in the book just about like Jesus' joy at the right hand of the Father. If you go back and listen to the sermon Jeff Beard preached at Seaford Baptist on our podcast feed, he preached it on Legacy Sunday this year, which I think was like May 21st, somewhere around there. Um, Pastor Jeff's sermon was basically, he was teaching Goodwin's stuff about the joy of Christ at the right hand of the Father right now. So the theology is there. If you can distill it to someone, it's so pure and wonderful, but the reading of it I did find challenging. So I don't want you to pick up the heart of Christ and be like, what was Pastor Michael thinking telling me to read this book? It is, it's a tough one, but the, if if you can get to the theology in it, which I think you can, I don't think he's as hard as like John Owen would be. Um, it's so good. This, Thomas Goodwin is Joel Beakey's favorite Puritan. Beakey wrote that book, uh, Following God Fully with Michael Reeves. He loves him some Thomas Goodwin. Let me share with you a bit of what I learned from Matthew Henry and Richard Baxter before I wrap up our Puritan talk. So um, the, I'll start with the, the quest for meekness and the quietness of spirit. I'll, I'll share three things from that. Again, this book just rocked my world. If you're a man and you struggle with your emotions, you need to read this book immediately. Immediately. Listen to this. True courage is such a presence of mind as enables a man rather to suffer than to sin, to choose affliction rather than iniquity, to pass by an affront though he lose by it, and be hissed at for a fool and a sneak rather than engage in a sinful quarrel. He that can deny the brutal lust of anger and revenge, rather than violate the royal law of love and charity, however contrary the sentiments of the world may be, is truly resolute and courageous. The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Woo! That is good. That is good. All right? That deserves uh, a nature boy woo, or a Neptune boy woo, if you were at VBS with us this week. You know what I'm talking about. That was an inside joke. Um, Got to be there. I hope you are there. But as I said in part one, pray for us even if you're not. Um, Listen, true courage is saying, I will keep my mouth shut. And though I could absolutely destroy this person right now, I'm right and they are wrong. I have the higher ground. Okay? I'm not going to say anything. I'm not. I will deny the brutal lust of anger and revenge. And I I will not violate the royal law of love and charity. And I will choose affliction over sin. I will suffer under, quote-unquote, losing an argument before I will sin by transgressing this person and unleashing my anger upon them. Mm, That's true courage, Matthew Henry says. Amen, brother. Page 75. 
if you have if, uh, the 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 Whip and Stock Publishers Edition, which is the only one I've really been able to find widely sold on the internet. Page seventy five. Prosperity and adversity have each of them their particular temptation to peevishness and frowardness. Peevishness is a favorite word of Matthew Henry's. It's like to be peevish is just to kind of be irritable and angry and you know always just kind of brimming with a negative emotion. The former by making men imperious, the latter by making men impatient. Against the assaults of each of these temptations, the grace of meekness will stand on guard. If you have a lot and things are going really well for you, then you are going to be tempted to just think, I'm great and nothing can harm me and nothing can get to me. And if anybody does get in my way, I'll destroy them, right? Where if you are lacking, things are not going well for you, everything's going terrible for you, then you're just angry and you're impatient and you're running around going, nothing's going well for me and I've got a right to destroy anybody who gets in my path. But either way, meekness is the thing that's going to guard you from those two extremes. If things are going well for you, remain meek. If things are going poorly for you, remain meek. It's going to keep you from becoming peevish or froward in your uh, emotions. One more from Matthew Henry, and, uh, and this one might be my favorite of the ones that I've shared. We must also mortify the desire of the applause of men as altogether impertinent to our true happiness. If we have not learned to value ourselves by their good word, we shall not much disturb ourselves of their ill word. St. Paul bore reproaches and much meekness because he did not build upon the opinion of men, reckoning it a small thing to be judged of man's judgment. This is another just like brutal, brutal passage to read as a man pleaser, but it, it, it's helpful because it, it compels you uh, and motivates you to want to crucify your man pleasing, to crucify the fear of man. He says, if you kill the desire you have to be applauded by men, and you're like, the applause of men, the approval of men, it will not make me happy, okay? If that is a decision that you make in your heart, it will not make me happy. Then when they come along and they're like, I don't like you, and I don't like what you're doing, and I'm mad at you, and you're this, and you're that. Well, if you're not living for their applause, you're not going to be as harmed by their insults. But if you're living for their applause, you will be destroyed by their insults. You won't be disturbed much for their ill word if you're not living for their applause. That is so good, so helpful, and I'm glad. I'm glad again. I read it again this morning. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. It's so practical. You read this stuff, and it's almost like... It's almost like little proverbs, right? Not, not as good as the proverbs of Scripture, of course, but these little just theological proverbs, practical proverbs that you can take into your day. And then uh, finally, I will wrap up with The Cure of Depression and Excessive Sorrow by Richard Baxter, another book that just feels so ahead of its time. His definition of, of depression is my favorite ever. Depression is basically what he calls excessive sorrow. Sorrow is excessive when it is fed by a mistaken cause, meaning sorrow is excessive, uh, made excessive by worry. You get depressed because you are worrying. All is too much where none is due, and great sorrow is too much when the cause requireth but the less. And what he goes on to share is that essentially, well, let me, let me do it this way. Let me share his Christian definition of hope. 
where he says, Men think that they do believe God's word and that his promises are all true to others, yet they cannot hope uh, for the promised blessings to themselves. Hope is that grace by which a soul that believeth the gospel to be true doth comfortably expect that the benefits promised shall be its own. It is an applying act. So what he's saying is that like hope is your ability to believe the gospel is true for you. And what Baxter teaches in this book is that what depression and excessive sorrow does, which is caused by worry, is it eclipses hope. When you're depressed, you start to believe that the gospel is not true for you. You lose hope. You believe it for everybody else, but you won't believe it for yourself. I actually taught about this on Easter. It was straight from Richard Baxter. Um, and then I really enjoyed the way that he, I mean, his, at some point I'll probably do a podcast on all of the helps and, and that he gives for the depressed and, and what he describes as the cure for the depression of, uh, f- the cure for depression and excessive sorrow. But I just wanted to share this, he, he talks about thinking too deeply when you're depressed, which is something that, that depressed people are very prone to. He says, avoid your musings and exercise not your thoughts now too deeply nor too much. Long meditation is a duty to some, but not to you. No more than it is a man's duty to go to church that hath his leg broken or his foot out of joint. He must rest and ease until it be set it again and strengthened. You may live in the faith and fear of God without setting yourself to deep, disturbing thoughts. Those that will not obey this counsel, their friends must rouse them from their musings and call them off it to something else. If you're thinking too deeply about stuff and you're depressed, you're just going to like collapse in on yourself in this pit of despair and sorrow. He's like, don't do that. And if you have friends who are doing that, tell them to stop. And then he says, don't be long in secret prayer. If you're depressed and you pray too long by yourself, you'll get more depressed because, again, you'll start thinking about everything that's wrong. He says, pray with others so they can remind you of what is good and what is true because they haven't lost hope the way you've lost hope. So, so practical. Um, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I'll say it again. He also says in this book that if you are depressed, sing more than pray when you're alone because when you're singing, you'll focus on God's goodness. If you pray when you're alone, you'll start focusing on everything that's wrong. It's practical. I love the Puritans, guys. They talk differently. They talk differently. I think that they talk in a way where you're like, this is epic. Christianity is epic. Praying is epic. Sharing our faith is epic. Going to church is epic. Raising our families in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord is epic. It gets Christianity back up into the heavenlies, and then it sends you right back down to earth to represent God. I love that. It compels worship. I feel worshipful. My affections are stirred after I read these guys. Um, They strengthen Trinitarian theology. They give you such a, a, a strong understanding of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, how they work for our salvation, how they work together for the glory of the triune God. Uh, They help you deal with your doubts, with your emotions. I think they help you to deal with Christian virtues and to grow in Christian virtues. They explain how to live in two kingdoms, right? How to represent the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. They loved preaching and they made it primary in their churches. They, They teach you how to pray. They teach you how to suffer. They're the natural children of the Reformation and they're the parents of our denomination. Get into the Puritans. I wish I hadn't waited as long as I did in my Christian walk, but you know what? Glory be to God that he's given me the exposure I have now. 
I encourage you, get into the Puritans. All right. Again, I uh, ask you the questions I ended with last week. These are questions that have really kind of come out of the Reformed pastor in a lot of ways, reading that uh, book. Um, and the questions are these. How's your soul doing, Christian? How's your soul? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you living in rebellion? Are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? Are your spiritual disciplines strong? Are you sharing your faith? Are you affectionate towards the Lord? Are you dry and, 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 and struggling? Is there evidence of His grace at work in your life? Where do you want to see His grace at work that it's not right now? If you sort through these questions and you're like, oh boy, I'm a mess. I need to talk to a pastor. We would love to talk to you. Reach out to us. Connect at SeafordBaptist.com. We want to help you live the pilgrim life. We want to help you represent the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And maybe one of these Puritan books or something they've said in it could be of help to you. All right, we will talk to you next week. Hoping to be back next week with a couple of guests. Uh, and uh, But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, definitely going to be doing a podcast with a couple of guests in the next couple of weeks. But I hope that you have enjoyed talking about the Puritans. We'll try to put the books that we have talked about here and these resources in the show notes for both episodes. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you back next week. Keep living that pilgrim life.